so much. Turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, just so you'll know, um, I'm going to be preaching uh, this morning in, in Ephesians. Then Gavin and I swapped up before and after General Assembly, so he'll be preaching next uh, Lord's Day. And the next, because the next Sunday I'll be, uh, God willing, helping our son move to Wisconsin. So uh, then on the 28th we'll pick up our, our study in Ephesians. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at verses, verse 7 and, and the first part of verse 8. Uh, I, I've said several times, and I'm going to say again in the sermon, I'm sure, that this is one long sentence in the Greek. And, uh, you know, the Greek Bible doesn't have all the punctuation that we have in our English translations. These are translator decisions, okay? And so your Bible translation, whichever one you're using, might kind of divide this section up, put the periods in different places, okay, that mine does, for example. Uh, mine has a period in the middle of verse 8. That's why I'm stopping there today, okay? Uh, so yours might run on. I might be stopping in the middle of a sentence in your translation. Just want you to understand that. Again, thank you all for praying for my vision. It is uh, unimproved. Uh, so I apologize to you all over here again today. <clears throat> but I am living by faith that it will get better. Ephesians chapter uh, 1 verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity again to spend time together with your people in your word. What a rich treasure. What a great opportunity. Because we know this is the means you've given to us to grow in our faith. It is through the reading and the hearing and the proclaiming of your word that we grow in grace and become more like Jesus. That's why I pray for this time. This time in your word that you would bless it and that you would encourage us in it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Again, when I, when I started... This uh, section of Ephesians chapter 1 that begins in verse 3 and goes through verse 14. I mentioned that one of the ways to analyze it is to see it in view of the work of the Trinity. That is, these verses describe the work of each person of the Trinity in, in the unfolding of the plan of salvation. The first part deals with uh, the work of God the Father in planning and ordaining our salvation. The second part focuses upon the work of God the Son in accomplishing our salvation. The latter part of this section deals with the work of the Holy Spirit in applying salvation to our hearts. And that's just kind of a helpful little outline, I think, that might help you and assist you as you kind of work through this, what can be a rather difficult and complex and profound text. God the Father planned our salvation. God the Son accomplished our salvation, did what the Father sent Him to do. And God the Holy Spirit applies the work of God the Son to the hearts of those God the Father 
chose before the foundation of the world and predestined to adoption as sons. That's what we find in this first section of Ephesians. And so we come to, to verse 7. We move into the, what is the, really the second part of that, which focuses upon the work of God the Son in accomplishing our salvation. Notice that verse 7, at least in my text, begins with the words, in Him. And that pronoun Him refers back to verse 6, the end of verse 6, where reference is made to the Beloved. And there Paul says that the grace of God is freely bestowed on us. How? In the Beloved. And that, of course, refers to Jesus Christ. And so, verse 7 begins, in Jesus, or in Christ. And that phrase, in Him, is very important in this first section of Ephesians chapter 1. Look back with me again to verse 4, where we find that God chose us in Him, or in Christ. Our verse this morning, verse 7, in Him, or in Christ, we have redemption. Look at verse 9, where he uh, talks about the kind intention of his will, which he purposed in him or in Christ. And then verse, look at verse, uh, end of verse 10, first part of verse 11. It says, in him or in Christ also we've obtained an inheritance. And if you look at verse 13, it says, in him or in Christ you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Our salvation centers on the work of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? We were chosen in Him. We are redeemed by Him. We are sealed into a relationship with Him. All the way through the Bible, really we see the confirmation of what Jesus Himself said in John 14, 6. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The book of Ephesians, I think, kind of nails the, hammers the last nail in that coffin. That there is salvation in no one else. And every other means that people use to try to be saved or be right with God or get to heaven are dead ends. They simply do not work. Well, our text this morning, and you may have been able to tell by the hymns that we've sung already, focus upon the wonder and the glory and the splendor of redemption. Several things about that I want to draw from this text. And first, I want to simply look at the biblical meaning of redemption. The word redemption is taken from the marketplace. Uh, to redeem something is simply to buy it or sometimes to buy it back. When you go to a store, the items in a store are all owned by the proprietor. They belong to him. Now he has a, he has a price tag on all those items that he owns. And, and that price tag really is the price of redemption. And so you go to the store and you take out $2 and you, you buy a bag of potato chips. That's the price of redemption. And what does the store clerk do? He gives you that for which you paid. He gives you that item 
which you redeemed. Now, you and I are not placed on shelves in a store and locked up in a box in a marketplace, but we're held in bondage to sin. We're held in bondage to sin. Sin is our problem, and it's a big problem. I would submit to you that one of the issues, one of the problems in contemporary Christianity today is we have lost the sense of how bad sin is. You know what happens? If you reduce the problem of sin, you reduce the necessary solution to deal with sin. You get that? If you think that sin's not really such a bad problem, it's not going to take such a great act to deal with your sin. But the Bible says, Paul says, in Romans chapter 6, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. He says that the wage of sin is death. He says that we are slaves to sin. We are in bondage to sin. I would say that's a problem. That's a drastic problem. And a drastic problem like that requires a drastic solution. You see, to deal with our sin, our problem of sin, we can't just turn over a new leaf. We, we can't just decide that we're, you know, we're, after all, we're basically okay. We can't just go through therapy. We can't smile and try to have a positive attitude like a particular TV preacher encouraged us to do. We can't suppose that, you know, God is a God of love. After all, He will overlook our sins in the end. No, our, our, our sin problem is a serious problem. And it requires a serious solution. And that solution, God's solution, is redemption. Notice what the text says, verse 7. In Him, or in Christ, we have redemption. Our redemption is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Him. In Him. And Him alone. They're redeemed. We're going to conclude our service later by saying that nearer him there is a redeemer Jesus God's own son blessed lamb of God Messiah the holy one that's, that's the gospel isn't it you and I are dead in sin in bondage in sin and God sent a redeemer his holy son to pay the price for our redemption and that's what we see in the second place in our text. We see the price that Jesus paid to redeem us. How was it that Jesus redeemed us? What price did he pay? He paid the price of his own blood. The text says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. Critics of Christianity have said that we have a bloody religion. But you know, in fact, that's true. They mean it as a criticism, but in fact, it gets at the very heart of the gospel. I've said time and time again that this book is a bloody book. And, and there's a reason for that. 
The reason is because in Hebrews 9 we read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's how crucial the shedding of Jesus' blood is to our religion, to our faith. We have nothing without it. The substance of our faith is gone. The blood of Jesus has not been shed. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he could have just as well said, I'm not ashamed of the blood. I've said before, unfortunately, there are some denominations that are ashamed of the blood. Taking out hymns from their hymn books that refer to the blood. Who wants to sing about a gruesome hymn like there is a fountain filled with blood? But the Bible says that we are redeemed through His blood. The cross has become a, a kind of the symbol of Christianity, hasn't it? You know, people wear the cross as jewelry. People, you know, go down the road and people erect crosses uh, along the highway. It was a big kind of stir uh, a few months ago when. Uh, fish house in Florence, I think it was, had this huge cross erected in their parking lot. Uh, some people, you'll see them toting a cross even down the road. You look above my head, there's a cross behind me. The cross is important, but I want you to understand the cross doesn't say. It's the Christ that died on the cross that say. It's the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that saves. It's what the the text says. In Him we have redemption through His blood. You know, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. when, When God did what to clothe Adam and Eve because of their sin? He killed an animal, shed blood to give them garments to cover their nakedness that became aware of because of their sin. All the way through the the Old Testament sacrificial system, even to the death of Jesus on the cross, the blood has been the central focus of the Christian faith. Here again in Ephesians 1, 7, we're told that redemption comes only through His blood. I want you to look with me. Keep your finger on Ephesians 1. Look over to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's been a long time in 1 Peter, not long ago, but I want to go back to, to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. In verse 18, where we find this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with what? Precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That verse adds a different dimension, a more personal dimension to it, doesn't it? It's not just the blood. It's what kind of blood? It's precious blood. It's the precious blood of Jesus that redeems us. And it's precious because you realize it's your only hope of redemption. Suppose, just suppose that you were kidnapped 
and you're being held for a very high ransom, and your captors made it clear to you that your only hope of being set free was someone paying that ransom that had been demanded. And you sit there and you wait and you hope and you anticipate, and finally the day comes, and there's this suitcase. And when they open it, it's full of money. It's the price of your redemption. And your captors are going to let you go and set you free. Don't you know that suitcase full of money would be precious to you? And the one who gave it would be precious to That's the way it is with Jesus. The price that he paid is precious. His blood is precious to the believer. And he is precious because he's willing to give it. Third, we see in our text the result of redemption. The text tells us that redemption brings about the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. You know how it is when you know that someone has something against you or you've done something to hurt someone's feelings. What a wonderful thing it is when that person forgives you and lets bygones be bygones and that relationship that you had with them is restored. What a precious thing that is. You know, that, that happens in marriage a lot, doesn't it? Your marriage is going to succeed. It's going to happen a lot. Marriage, to a great extent, is a, is a long process of forgiveness and restoration. Isn't it? Being willing to forgive and restore. Being willing to re- forgive and restore. Being willing to forgive and restore. It's the forgiveness, really, that gives us the assurance of restoration and acceptance. That's what redemption does. Redemption brings us the promise of the forgiveness of our sins so that our relationship with God can be restored and renewed and we can be made whole with Him again. Redemption brings about forgiveness. In order to understand, again, to understand the beauty of forgiveness, however, you've got to realize the problem of sin. The two are always related to each other. The greater your understanding of the gravity and the problem of sin, the greater you will see the value and the beauty of forgiveness. The less you think sin to be a problem, the less you will value the forgiveness God has granted you. Forgiveness is central to the gospel. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, remember he was in the upper room, had the last supper with his disciples, he took the cup, 
He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is what? Shed for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said it even before he went to the cross. My blood that I'm about to shed on that cross is for the forgiveness of sins. Now you might be asking, well, just what does that mean? How complete is God's forgiveness? I've done some pretty bad things in my life. Read to people in a bad way. Done things I shouldn't have done. Things in my life I'm so ashamed of I wouldn't I wouldn't tell you here. How complete is God's forgiveness? Can God forgive all my sins? And the Bible has a resounding yes to that. God's forgiveness is complete and total. What did Isaiah say? Though your skin sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. You look with me and just flip over a couple of pages to the book of Colossians. Chapter 2. Well, more than a few pages. I get past Philippians. Colossians 2.13. We read this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us what? All our transgressions. Psalm 103 says that God separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. I'm not sure how far that is, but that's a long way. You can't see the east from the west. He, he puts his, our sins behind his back. These are all figurative things you see, but they're to describe how complete God's forgiveness is. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Look at one more verse with me. Micah chapter 7. Go to the Old Testament. The Micah chapter 7. In verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love. He pardons iniquity, passes over all our transgressions, God's forgiveness is complete, total, and full. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. And then, finally, we see the basis of our redemption. And this, to me, really is the best part of the whole passage. And I know redemption is a wonderful thing. And forgiveness is a rich blessing. But the storehouse from which God grants us redemption and gives us forgiveness is even an even greater treasure and blessing. Look at what the text says. In him, in, in him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. How does it come? 
It comes according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. The Bible talks a lot about grace. We're going to see when we get to Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace alone. God gives us grace to cover our sin. One of the hymns talks about God giving grace to cover all our sin. God's grace redeems you and God's grace forgives you. And God, you see, doesn't, however, just have a little bit of grace that he kind of parses out here and there. God's got a whole lot of grace. And the Bible says he gives it freely upon his people. Again, look at verse 8, where we find that he has lavished his grace on us. Now, lavish is not a word that we use very often. But it means to bestow something on someone profusely or in abundance. When my mother died a few weeks ago, the neighbors lavished food upon us. They brought it in abundance. I've never seen so much fried chicken. <laughs> now, I like chicken. And I really like fried chicken. But even I got to the place where I'd seen just about enough fried chicken. They brought it, and they brought it, and they brought some more. They lavished it on. That's what God does with His grace. He gives it, and He gives it, and He gives it some more. But the, but the wonderful thing is that we never tire of it. it. It never grows old. We never think we've had enough of it. That's because we're always in need of more of God's grace. You know, redemption is a once-for-all thing, isn't it? God redeems us. At the moment of our conversion through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But forgiveness, forgiveness is an ongoing process. Right? We need God to forgive us every day. Because every day we fall short of the mark. We sin and disobey Him. We need His grace continually and the Bible tells us he lavishes it upon us he's not stingy with his grace at all but he gives grace according to the need of the moment whatever sin you've committed the Bible says if you confess your sin he is faithful and just to forgive you. And how does he do that? That's what the text says. He does it through his blood. And the bestowing of his grace. Now, through the Holy Spirit, Paul realized that some people might come at this and draw the wrong conclusion. Be turning with me to Romans chapter 6 while I lead up to this. Some people, Paul realized, might think, ah, 
I get it now. If I want to have more grace, then what I need to do is commit a little more sin. Exactly what the Bible says. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? That's not, a, that's not a use of God's grace. That's a misuse of it. And what does Paul say, verse 2? He says, may it never be. That's the strongest possible negative in the Greek. Literally, it's God forbid. Meganoita in the Greek. God forbid. And Paul goes on to say, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, receiving God's grace doesn't give us a license to live in sin. But it gives us the encouragement to live in grace. Live grace-filled lives. Lives that have been changed by grace. Lives that have been redeemed by grace. Lives that are forgiven by grace. Lives that attempt to display God's grace. Redemption is not just a great biblical word. But redemption is a great blessing. Because redemption is a way that you are made right with God. And what a wonderful description Paul gives to us of it here. We are redeemed in Christ. Our redemption is through the blood of Christ. Our redemption comes through the grace of God in Christ... And that grace is lavished, poured out upon us. Remember that important word, redemption. And be thankful for that great truth we're about to sing, that there really is a Redeemer. Jesus. God's own Son. He's the precious Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Holy One. And He's paid your price of your redemption to set you free. Thank you so much for your word. And again, we thank you for the grace that you give to us in Jesus. Pray you bless us as we seek to live in grace and by grace. And give you the praise and glory for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.